pray. Father, we confess our great need of you and we're grateful for your faithfulness. When we are faithless, so often you remain faithful. And so we ask this morning as we come to your word that out of your abundant faithfulness you would speak to us through the Holy Spirit, that you would equip us and build us up with what we need, that we might offer back to you praise and thanksgiving and worship, do your name, and that we might have all that we need from you. So speak to us this morning, help us, encourage us, build up your church, we pray in Christ's name, amen and amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. It's wonderful to see uh, so many of your faces and, and visitors. And wow, you might have noticed we put pretty much all our chairs that we could fit back in the room. Uh, in, in part, we were hoping that that would give us space to spread out this summer. Clearly that worked. Um, but we know there are a lot of visitors and we're just glad to, to see you. Um, welcome officially. Welcome to summer 2021. I don't know if you've been welcome to that yet, but I'm going to do that. Uh, last summer we started and we're continuing this summer each Sunday morning unpacking and walking through a psalm. Uh, last summer we started at Psalm 1, always good to start at the beginning, and got through Psalm 11. And this, this morning uh, we'll start in Psalm 12. You can turn your Bibles if you'd like there. The psalms are a rich uh, treasure trove of encouragement and praise, and mixed in there's lament and crying out to God, and in the midst of all that, this holding firm to hope that God will fulfill His promises always. And so over the next 12 Sundays, we're going to walk through the Psalms 12 through 24, Lord willing, preached by different voices, but familiar ones, many of whom you've heard before. I'll kick off this week. Pastor Devin's actually preaching Psalm 13 next week, which is one of my favorite psalms, and so I'm going to sit up front. Uh, Devin, you over here? I'm going to sit up front next week so I, can, uh, so I can listen close and take notes. One of my favorites. Um, and I'm looking forward to this. Uh, as I mentioned last week, too, we have a few of these uh, in, the, in the back, uh, on the back uh, counter. Uh, some, uh, many of you grab them. It's just a simple little journal um, with a sticker on the front. If you'd like to follow along this summer, have something to like track our study in the Psalms, these are available in the back for, I don't know how many we have left, but they're there if you'd like one. Uh, so yeah, turn to Psalm 12. That's where we'll be this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of a, a background, if you will, some context on the Psalm. Uh, you may have noticed in your Bibles, there's a title that sits above many of the Psalms. And that uh, my, my, in my Bible, it says the faithful have vanished. And those titles are editorial editions by the publisher, usually to kind of give you a gist of the psalm. However, the text right to the next, in, uh, next to in my Bible, the, the large number 12, the smaller text in italics, those are part of the original psalm as it was written. So that, that's helpful to give us some information, some background on the meaning and and context, if you will, of that psalm. For example, Psalm 12 reads, to the choir master, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. And this tells us a few things. One, it says to the choir master, which is just what it sounds like, the person leading the choir. In this case, this psalm would likely be sung by the congregation. It was fit for congregational worship, suitable for that. 
2, it says, according to the Sheminith. Now, the Sheminith is a, is a musical term, as best we know, refers to the number 8 or the octave in a musical scale, and likely a reference to the lowest notes sung by male voices. So it's very likely that this particular song would be sung in the lower register. Just a bit of helpful information. And three, it says a psalm of David. And this one helps us with authorship. This psalm is reported to have been penned by David. David is a lowly shepherd boy whom God would anoint as king, the future king of Israel. And from his family line would come the king of kings, Jesus the Messiah. And so scholars place this Psalm 12 in history at a time when David, who is no longer a boy and not yet king, likely when he was on the run and being persecuted by Saul, who was the first king, but who had been rejected by God as king over Israel. And because David was now anointed the king and promised to be king, this made Saul a little angry, you can imagine. This guy's out for his job. And so at this time, when this psalm was written, David is under persecution. And those who were loyal to Saul, who had become an ungodly king, are out for blood. And so this the context, this song to be sung in the congregation, we can see it and read through it, and we'll see it as we unpack it a little bit here, is kind of a communal lament. A lament is, is outward grieving. There's an outward groaning and lament for all the brokenness that David sees all around him. And right in the middle of this psalm, there's this hopeful promise that he holds on to. So let's read our text together, Psalm 12. It's all of eight verses. I picked a short one to preach out of this psalm series. Whoever gets to read, um, which one is it, 17 or 18? Good luck. There's 50 verses of Psalm 18. I don't know, who, is that you, Mitch? Mitch is preaching Psalm 18, so pray for Mitch. Okay, Psalm 12, verses 1 through 8. To the choir master, according to the Sheminith, the Psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of men. This is God's word for us this morning. Now in this community lament of Psalm 12, we see two primary things, I think. First, David identifies a problem. And second, David holds on to a promise. The problem 
that David identifies, I think, is this, that the world is infected and filled with lies and deception and hypocrisy. But the promise that David holds to is that God's word is pure and true as a contrast to the lies. And that gives him and us assurance that God will always defend and always deliver his people. Now, one more thing you might notice as you read this psalm is that this psalm is a bit of a sandwich. Psalms are considered poetic literature, and the poetic structure is kind of laid out like this, A, B, A, if you're familiar at all with poetry. And so if this is a sandwich, go with me for a second, the problem is the bread and the meat, or if you're one of my kids, the peanut butter and grape jelly, is the promise. The problem on either side is outlined, and then the promise is kind of in the middle. So that's how we'll look at this text today, the problem and the promise. David opens with this, save, O Lord, which basically translates help, which I think is a great way to start a prayer. Help. Opening with save, O Lord, implies from the beginning need. There's a humble dependence on display right from the start of this psalm. Help us, Lord, we are in desperate need. And then David goes on and he says, from what do we need to be saved? He identifies these problems. Verse 1, he says, the faithful have vanished. They they disappeared. 2, verse 2, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. As well in verse 2, everyone speaks with flattering lips and a double heart. We'll get into that here in a second. Verse 4, David says, everyone trusts in themselves and their own words. And it's kind of boiled down into who is master over us. David sees this as a problem. And then the bottom part of the sandwich, the bottom piece of bread, if you will, verse 8, David says, wickedness is all around. Vileness is exalted among the children of men. Now remember, David is somewhat on the run, in danger for his life. He has a few men who are faithful to him, who believe that God has indeed anointed him, that he will become the next king, even while Saul is still on the throne. But so many of the godly, faithful leaders, David says, they're they're nowhere to be seen. Saul has turned away from God's commands And the kingdom, on the whole, has followed suit. Wicked leaders breed wicked kingdoms steeped in wicked culture, bearing the fruit of wickedness. And David's going, I look around and I see fewer and fewer God-fearing and faithful people around me. The faithful have vanished. He goes on, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. Again, this seems pretty straightforward, right? These are empty words, meaningless words. They don't mean what they say. They utter lies to their neighbors. They're putting on a face, if you will. David says they have what he calls double hearts and use flattering lips. Flattering lips, this is, uh, this is vain language. It's vanity. They use smooth talk and false compliments in order to deceive, to take advantage of others, to puff themselves up or to gain an advantage over someone else, perhaps even to position themselves as being morally superior 
They can weasel their way and argue their way into a position of authority. And then David talks about being double-hearted. We might use the phrase, someone who is two-faced. One for Sundays and another for weekdays, right? One heart or one face for one group of friends and then a completely different face, or in this case, a different heart for another group. Simply a two-hearted person is a hypocrite, is what David's saying. Charles Spurgeon Commenting on this says, a man without a heart is a wonder, but a man with two hearts is a monster. And David interjects here in verse 3 after exposing this problem of hypocritical, lying, faithless people he sees around them. He prays this. May, this is an, kind of an imprecatory prayer. I'll explain that in a second. He prays this. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boasts. That's an interesting addition to a prayer, isn't it? As an aside, this does give us some insight into righteous anger and how to humbly and confidently pray that God will bring down justice in places where it's needed. I don't want to open up a big can of worms here, but there is biblical warrant and guideline for how to pray these kinds of prayers. And David interjects one here in verse 3. He says, Cut off, O Lord, flattering lips and tongues that make great boasts. We won't go down that road. Uh, You can practice your imprecatory prayers at home. Uh, Back to Psalm 12. David says that this kind of heart, this ungodly, faithless, hypocritical, lying, double-hearted person, verse 4 he says, trusts in their own strength and wisdom. He's in a sense quoting them, saying, with our tongues... We will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? This is the heart posture of the majority of people in David's world at this time. They are so arrogant that they shun and ignore any other authority. They have set themselves up as little kings, small k, or little gods, small g, of their own little kingdoms and universes. They determine what is right and what is just. They take what they want, and by saying whatever they need to say, they justify themselves. And to give us a little glimpse at the end of the psalm, the other piece of bread, David says, On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. See, the wicked aren't even just minding their own business and living their own lives off to the side. They prowl. They spread like a cancer cell or a mutating virus, just looking for other things to infect and consume. And vileness, David says, is exalted among the children of men. This is fascinating to me as I'm picking this apart this week. Vileness, wickedness, things that are detestable and evil are exalted, meaning they're being upheld as good and virtuous things among men and women. Historically, David's being persecuted by Saul somewhere around 3,000 years ago. And yet I can't help but see parallels in our modern context. Are these not familiar problems in our own world and in fact in our own hearts? Are we not prone to want to save face, 
to put on masks for our neighbors to make ourselves look better than we actually are? Do we not project out into the world our best selves in both reality and in the realm of social media so that most people get the highlight reel and not the reality reel? And even our own failings and shortcomings are often presented in such a way so that we will receive acknowledgement and accolades from those who know us, attempting to show some humility that ends up just being a humble brag, right? Now, I don't want to overplay this, but what David identifies here isn't just a 3,000-year-ago problem or just a localized cultural phenomenon of his time. He's pointing to a proneness in the human heart that's just bearing fruit in a particular way in his world and does in ours. I mean, think about it for a second. So much of the way we interact virtually in the world is just full of flattery. There can be true encouragement and tracking with people and building one another up. I don't want to discount it all and throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater, but there are scores of hashtags developed for the express purpose of following one another. That's it. You follow me, I'll follow you, and together we can monetize our Instagram feeds. Right? Now I understand how how views and algorithms work and to generate those sorts of things, and so artists and businesses are working the system as it's designed, and that's all well and good. I'm not down with utilizing those sorts of things. I just want to check the propensity of our human hearts in this process. Because often, what we put out into the world is not really an attempt to be known. It's often not really an attempt to educate or to inform. I mean, sometimes it is. But often it serves as bait. Often, I think, bait for flattery. And and the reality is we don't desire empty flattery. We all understand that that is worthless. Tim Keller talks about that where he says, "To to be known and not loved is terrifying. To be loved and not known is empty, right? We all know to be to be loved, but no one really knows us is empty. It's flattery. We all know that that doesn't feed us. And yet, so often, We fall for it. It's the the temporary bump of endorphins when someone flatter us, but there's emptiness behind those words. So how often do we see our own double-heartedness, our own two-facedness? This is one of the reasons God calls us to know and be known in the context of a local church, in a local community, because if someone knows me here on Sunday morning and they know me when we're together each week in community group, and they come to my house for dinner once in a while, and I go to theirs, and my kids play with their kids, I am virtually unable to maintain two faces, two hearts, at least not for very long. And this is God's grace to keep us from double-heartedness. One of the first things Adam and Eve did after disobeying God in the garden, after eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they hid Double-heartedness, as David outlines here, is a constant process of hiding a portion of reality from being known. So as we read this psalm and listen to the Holy Spirit, where do we see this proneness in ourselves? Further, where do we see this in the world around us? Do we see things that concern us through this lens, that there is a heart problem that is coming to the surface? 
In verse 8, David adds, remember, vileness is exalted among the children of men. The things that should be rightly seen as evil are not only not seen as evil, they are being upheld as good things. Vices are being redefined as virtues, culturally in the West. Pride is redefined as self-confidence. Greed is redefined as resourcefulness. Lust is redefined as love. Murder is redefined as health care. And good and virtuous things are redefined as bad. Courage is redefined as closed-mindedness. Patience is redefined as cowardice. Truthfulness is redefined as hateful. Modesty is redefined as oppressive. And things like family are being redefined as problematic. Now, around 300 years after David would pen this psalm, the prophet Isaiah would write this in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight. Does this not echo a little of David's own words of our own lips, who is master over us? And this is how David closes Psalm 12, with the concession that it might be this way for a little while. The reality is the life in which he's living is continuing in this way for now. But here's the beauty in all of that weight that I just leveled this morning. David doesn't just throw his hands up and give up and just decide to wait it out in the bomb shelter. Sandwiched between David's lament of the problem And the reality that it might continue for a while, he upholds this really hopeful promise. And so we'll see a little bit of the sandwich within the sandwich, if you will, in verse 5. Look at verse 5. David says, um, I will now arise, says the Lord. He's quoting the Lord. I will now arise. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. And then in verse 7, he like affirms that promise and says, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. There's a, a promise that David is holding on to, that God will rescue. And then a statement that indeed the Lord will guard and protect his people. He's confessing, I believe this is true. You will do this. And then in the middle is verse 6, which is the meat in this psalm. David reflects on why the promise of the Lord hearing him and responding to his Christ. Why trust that God will bring safety, that God will save them? And he says, here's why I trust that God will save us. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace. Let's unpack this a little bit. Verse 5, David says, I will now arise. Quoting the Lord. The Lord's response to the cries of his people is, I'm coming. English theologian and Bishop Henry Law wrote this of Psalm 12. He says, the prayer ascends, Psalm 12, help, Lord, and the answer comes. The Lord's answer to help is this, now will I arise. Prayer speedily brings heaven to aid. God's eye never fails to observe the cruel treatment of his suffering saints. His ear receives each feeble breathing of his persecuted children. In every age it has been so. 
And it will be so until the reign of peace is sweetly settled. Until that day, the world will see oppression working and deliverance checking. God's eye never fails to observe, and his ear receives each feeble breathing in every age. It has been so. Verse 5 is a beautiful reminder that the Lord is not far off. He isn't unaware of the brokenness in this world brought about by sin. He sees the plundering of the poor. He hears the groaning of the needy. And Psalm 12 tells us he will be faithful to respond in righteousness and in justice. Still, in verse 5, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. What's remarkable to me about this is that Psalm 12 is telling us that the Lord knows the desire and the longing of the oppressed. He knows that they long to be home and whole and safe, and he's not going to give them something that they don't want. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The Lord promises to answer this prayer. And then the, answer, the response from David, in essence, back to God in verse 7, is, you, O Lord, will keep them. That is, the poor and the needy and the harassed, the helpless, you will keep them. That is, you will preserve them and keep watch over them and protect them. You will guard us, David continues, from this generation forever. You will not leave us without comfort. The Lord will rescue. The Lord will protect us. The Lord will preserve us. Remember, David is still on the run at this point. There isn't resolution to his situation. The nation is in turmoil. Saul still wants to kill him. He has very few supporters at this time. He looks around. The world is a mess. Evil is exalted. Good is hard to find. How can David confess this hope? Is he just a blind optimist? How can he say the Lord will guard us, that the Lord will keep his people Verse 6, he can say that because he believes the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The word of God is pure. It is clean, flawless, without blemish or impurity. Notice the contrast of God's words to man's words. The words of the children of man that David references earlier, lies, flattering lips, double heart, boastful, masterless tongues, but God's words are pure and right and true. Twisted and shady, flattering, hypocritical words are untrustworthy, but pure, holy, true words bring life and peace. There is a contrast, a juxtaposition here between what's happening in the world and the words of God. Which is true? Which of these is lasting? Which is trustworthy? Which of these endures? Like silver refined in a furnace. Now, you don't need to know a lot about metalworking to understand this illustration. You put silver in a crucible and heat it in a furnace, and what happens is that all the impurities that might be in that metal rise to the surface. The dross rises in the heat and gets scraped off. 
So that what happens is you're able to pull those impurities off the top and when you pour it back out into a mold, the silver is more pure than when it went in. And the imagery of being refined seven times, the number seven all throughout the scriptures is a reference to perfection and holiness. It's the one that's tied to God most often. So seven times in a furnace gives the picture of perfect purity. And it's not that the words of the Lord need to be purified, for they are indeed pure when they leave his mouth. They're already holy because he is holy. But the analogy goes like this. The Lord's promises, his words are tested in real time in the life of God's people, over and over and over again, every time his word shows itself to be pure and true. And so for God's people in the furnace of trials and hardship, the dross, if you will, gets purged and we find for ourselves that God's word is indeed true and right. We discover it every time in times of trial that his promise is trustworthy, that he will be faithful In the Gospel of John chapter 17, we read Jesus' prayer for his people. One of the things Jesus prays for his people as he is interceding for them, praying for them, is that they would be purified. John 17, verse 17, Jesus prays that his people would be sanctified, purified. And he prays this, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. I believe Jesus, who died and was raised and is seated at the right hand of the Father, who intercedes, which is praying for right now, he prays for and advocates for you, for his people, I believe that he continues to intercede in this way. I don't want to make too much out of it, but I think it's reasonable to think that Jesus keeps praying, John 17, 17, for the church that we would be sanctified in the truth, God's word is truth. And so part of our sanctification, our growth, our maturing spiritually is finding, we find in the fire that God's word is true. That his way really is best. That he really is trustworthy even when wrong seems to linger. One of my favorite hymns is, This is my father's world. And at the top of the third verse is the part that really anchors it for me. Verse 3 says this, This is my Father's world, oh let me ne'er forget, that, oh, that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. It's a beautiful picture of hope that God still rules. So let me ask, Where are you weary? Where are you worried? I think seeing the world for how it is is both crucial and can be kind of concerning for us. If you're like me and prone to cynicism, you can look around and be like, well, that's that, I guess. Someone just hit the red button. Let's just start again. I hope you're not as cynical as I am. But following David's lead, what does it look like to cry out to God for help? Not trusting in our own ability, our own strength, our own reasoning and logic. And in our crying out to God, can we hold on to the promise that God will, in his time, answer that prayer? Trusting that God will always do good. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. 
See, David identifies, I think rightly, the problem in himself and in the world around him. That lies, deception, hypocrisy, double-mindedness, double-heartedness is the proneness of our human hearts. But the promise that David holds is that God's word is true. And that, and only that, gives him and us assurance that God will never fail to deliver and defend his people. In our world, which seems at times to be insane, I find this a remarkable anchor of hope, that the Lord will preserve his people. Jesus himself says it in John 10, just a little further on from where we read this morning. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. God's word is pure, and we can be sure that God will always defend and always deliver. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in the midst of so much that we can't even get our heads around, in our weariness, in our brokenness, with our questions, that none of that throws you. And you respond to us with compassion and mercy, reminding us of your faithfulness over and over and over again. Well, Father, I pray that we would not only see the world for how it is, But I pray you would give us eyes to see the beauty and hope and truth of your word. That we would have faith that you will keep us and guard us. That you will answer this prayer to redeem and rescue, and restore. To continue your work in our hearts, cause our hearts to respond to you in praise for your faithfulness. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.